You're listening to All Marine Radio, broadcasting from Costa Mesa, California, on the All Warrior Radio Network. Tuesday morning to you. Mike McNamara in for a Tuesday edition of All Marine Radio. Here on your home for it, the All Warrior Radio Network. You know what we is. Um, today doing post-traumatic winning at uh, Marine Corps Air Station, New River. And... Uh, Excited to do that. So as you listen to this, I should be finishing up the first session on my way to two others. Um, as I've said repeatedly, the owner of the coolest job on the planet is none other than me. That's right. So so looking forward to it. Um, and uh, so today what you're going to hear is you're going to hear... Uh, Will and Jeff hop on with me, and we just talk a, a little, talk a little leadership, a little mental health, and uh, kind of a, another one of those show about nothings. Uh, but it's us talking about nothing, so always interesting, I think. Uh, yeah, it starts talking. Uh, it starts with talking about alcohol. <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyway, sit back, relax. Enjoy uh, about an hour's worth of a show about nothing. And uh, I'll have something for you again tomorrow. A uh, little update on uh, what went on here at uh, at New River. And, uh, and probably at least one or two of them will join me and we'll talk about whatever we talk about. So without further ado, right, um, this is... Uh, this is the Mensa brothers waxing eloquent about something. Hi, I'm Colleen McNamara, and you're listening to my dad on All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. Pop a top again. I've just got time for Jeff Kenny has not had a drink in a while, so. Uh, Will and I are trying to bait him into manning up. And, and you can <laughs> as Will said, nobody likes down. a quitter. <laughs> I'd like for you to anyway, Alan Jackson. <laughs> the, um, how much do you drink, Will? Are you a drinker? Uh, not a lot. Uh... You know, I said before on here. I don't. I don't drink when I'm alone in my own house, which is most nights. 
So I would say the times that I have more than uh, one drink in a day are not very many. And the ones that I have more than two are maybe once, I don't know, every four or five months. Got it. It's funny. I actually enjoy the taste of alcohol more now than when I used to drink a lot more. So, go figure. Yeah. Who knew? Who knew? We don't. I won't even. That's like a rhetorical question with Jeffrey. <laughs> Jeffrey, might you like to taste? Yeah. Might you like to taste of alcohol? Well, I mean, that was second. I mean, I do sometimes some of it well let me put it this way i there's some that i dislike less um you know and sometimes it really tastes and it's like you know if you don't do a lot of it when you do it you appreciate it more but then i the problem with me is i'm uh i don't have a i don't I, my, my state the state of jeff kenny is not ruled by a governor so oh there's no governor keep, no there's no governor there's just this there's a um there's a a conglomeration of uh, of uh, of devils who run me in my head, and so when booze comes, it's like uh, it's like they're they got coals in their ass, and now there's lighter fluid on them, and they run around, and I just, just I, I keep drinking until I, I say, well, I have one more because I feel good now, so I'll have another one, and then sure. another one, then uh, and then after like four of them, because I'm getting older now. I usually start falling asleep, but the next day my you know, it's not like a lot, but the next day my stomach's crappy and uh, I just had that feeling inside of uh, like you still have booze in your tissue. Right. So, but you can shake so, that off by about seven eight o'clock, right? Get after it not again. Not anymore. Right. Seven o'clock, seven or eight o'clock the next night after right. you wake up from right. the night. <laughs> right. So. The um, well, now has is this a really new? Um, you know this this struggle in terms of uh, this ongoing struggle with uh, the idea of proportionality and alcohol is this relatively new phenomenon in yes. your life? Well, since I'm 63, uh, if it was like 10 years old, it would be new. But uh, <laughs> no, it's it's uh, it's um, the last uh, five or six years, I get exhausted before I get drunk. You know, so it's like you know, uh, but sometimes I soldier on. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, so, like, I'll be drinking one type of liquor. Uh, yeah, I tell you, I'll be drinking one type of liquor and run out of that because I, I figure I'll, I'll discipline myself by not having it. And then I find other types which don't mix with what I like. If you're drinking wine, like Pinot Grigio, you run out of that. There's like four, those little bottles that come in a little four pack. Run out of that. I'm like, oh, well, look, I got some Captain Morgan here. <laughs> I'll just put it in the glass I was drinking wine in. And maybe it'll, well, no, it doesn't work that way. It's fucking Captain Morgan. And it doesn't mix well with uh, wine. Do you, so. real, do you realize that at the time? Or is that something yeah, you realize? I know, the whole, I know the whole time that I fucking do it anywhere. I do, it's not like I can't not do it. Because, like, every time we, we had deployed or I went on ship, you just fucking stop drinking. And never, never once I say, oh, man, I got to have a drink. Ever. You know, so, uh, but, you know, usually well, if it's available. Until you get you know, to the, ne until you get next to the, get to the next limo port, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> but then it's, it's an obligation, man. <laughs> uh, 
if, if it wasn't for me, Will would have been bored because there's only so many Akimas and Alcalas in a, uh, on ship, you know, so. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't for me and Joe Rutledge and Dan Hodges, you know, some of the other, you know, Will would have been bored. Yeah, yeah I agree with you. I was never, um, alcohol was not a good thing in my house. I, I saw my mom go through a lot of stuff with it, and uh, and so I was always respectful of it. I, it, it you know, you know, but not that I didn't get drunk, you know, in college, and then, uh, but you wonder when I really stopped drinking for the most part, uh, and I drink, you know, um, but not like these guys do. I mean, these guys, I mean, first, I mean, they're East Coast guys, right? So, you know, they're borderline alcoholics. How can um, you not be? I know. You're East Coast guys. You're just part of the program. So, but when I was, uh, when I was at the basic school in the IOC, I mean, you go home, you have beer at dinner or something like that. I mean, you can't read. Right. I'd be asleep. I mean, we'd be out of the field all day or most days. Sure. And, and then, uh, I'd, and I had, you know, I you know, I, I, I was learning so much. And I was having such a great experience. I mean, I just really, for the most part, stopped stopped drinking, you know, uh, except, you know, when out on the weekends when I'd be with you, you guys. But I didn't live up in the letter departments like Will did. Will and, and Paul Kennedy and Dave Furness and all the booze hounds are up there, right? And well, they, even worse, in the 300 block, that's where I was. Yeah, Jeff was up there. Across, I was a captain. I lived across the street from where I lived when I was a second lieutenant. Yeah, they, they would limp into work. Oh, we were outside last night, closing down whatever street they lived on. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So... So yeah, not so much. I want to uh, let's talk about Admiral Stockdale. First of all, did did either of you guys ever meet him, James Stockdale? No. 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 The, I here's here's one of the things I'm I find interesting now as I ponder, you know. So what happens when trauma comes in your life is your life changes. Okay. Now, if I talk to you about a military situation. Right, and and the military situation changes in front of you. We all know what it requires, right? We've got to mo- modify our course of action. But I think one of the hardest things for human beings to do is your, you know, when when traumatic events happen in your life, you know, there's things that have to change. But we don't see that. It's like the toy soldier that marches against the wall, and he's standing at the wall just marking time. He's not marking time because toy soldiers don't know how to do that. But I use that as kind of a figure of speech to illustrate it for you two rubes. Um, he's, uh, he's standing there, and, you know, we don't do the basic things that we're supposed to do. And I don't know, we don't see it like that, that life has changed in front of us, and so it requires us to change along with it, and we just seem to have the hardest time um, in adopting behaviors that help us deal with that, right? I mean, What's an example? Give, give an example. Well, I mean, don't fake it. you got to talk about it. If you really struggle with alcohol, right, after on, on the backside of trauma, you got to stop drinking. Just those kind of basic things that help us get what I call out of the valley of the shadow of death, we do the exact opposite, right? I thought you, I thought you meant like winning the conflict or winning the, you know. Well, that, that's what military situation changes. And- that's what that, that's what you're trying to do. You you have to adopt 
You're right. We all know. You know, that's what Commander's Intent's about, right? Change situation, irrelevant mission. It's in, changed in front of you. You've got to adapt what you're doing to the enemy in front of you. Well, in life, trauma changes, you know, your life. And yet we we tend not to adapt. I, a lot of people at all, you know, it's like we're we're on the accelerator, you know, of a kamikaze plane. And we won't turn left or right. Your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I remember in in those days when when we were doing that decision making study, and uh, I don't know who expressed it, but they would you could feel the decision window closing. You know, time is critical. Challenge. Yeah, and if you don't feel the decision window closing then you probably missed an opportunity to make a decision. Yeah. And interestingly, uh, I think that that applies to all kinds of things, that there's a decision window uh, in, you know, every decision you get to make. But I think when you get to that, uh, you know, significant traumatic type of experience, I think people don't recognize that they've got a decision window, and then they're carried along the stream. And and I, I mean, I just I think hard. Um, you know, the most significant thing that happened to me is when my wife passed away. Is that I I I really thought about what do I have to do? You know, what what does this mean? What do I have to do? Uh, what don't I want to? become what where i where do i not want to be in three months or six months or a year and i sort of got a decision window here and uh, i can shape how things are going to go and and i think that you and i have talked about this before mac you know i've i've fundamentally recognized everyone's different but i'm also different i'm older um i'm I'm reasonably self-aware because of some training and things. Um, uh, but, but I do credit a lot with just that sort of idea of how we used to approach things, how we approach things to make me think about um, what is happening, where do I want to be, Okay, I've got time now to figure out and decide how to get there. Because if you're not careful, all of a sudden you went off the side of the road, you went over the guardrail, and now you can't. It's really hard to get back there. And I think people don't necessarily recognize that. And, you know, unfortunately, in, in your career, you deal with a tragedy. You deal with people dying. You deal with people getting horribly injured. You see families get torn apart. You deal with those things. And um, I think I was able to internalize a lot of that sort of thing when all of a sudden I was the one that was in that situation. Um, but it's you can see how hard it is for a lot of people. They never really imagined and all of a sudden they're in a place they don't want to be and they don't even know that they're in that place. And then it may be too late. So, um, 
I don't know what the be- beginning question was, but that's what I think about it. Now, the beginning question was, Jeff, I muted you, so unmute yourself. Um, we can hear the feedback through your microphone, Jeff. You're, on, you're listening on the speaker, but you need to unmute yourself. Yeah, you're muted. How about now? There you go. Okay. Go ahead, Jeff. Jeff, you have any thoughts? Because to me, you know, again, your life is different. But you know, we, you know, my my observation is, you know, we can we fake it, um, and we self-medicate. That's the way the vast majority I know of Marines do it. I think that's the most the 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 way the vast majority of people do it. They they go kind of looking for a little bit of help, but they tend not to find it, and uh, and then they go ahead and um, you know I think they head back down that path. That's the way most I think the way most people deal with it. Um, and I don't know. I, I started looking at it in 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 in, in kind of that lens, and I thought, wow. Um, it is interesting. It's the same thing with, you know, in in a, in a tactical situation, the enemy's the enemy laydown has changed in front of you. What do you do? You, you execute the same plan? I mean, that's crazy. But but we don't but we don't look at it like that. People don't look at it. Like that's what I thought you were driving at because, uh, I mean, I I've I've had I guess as much uh, I don't know what you call it everyday trauma as everybody else as far as relatives passing away people getting sick i've never had that horribly close um stuff like will had and like what you had mac with you know siblings or wife you know um passing away or a traumatic way for one of your parents that just hasn't happened to me um but uh, but you did get your ass blown up yeah there is uh there is there is um the big trauma i mean the big thing is my whole life is uh, since i was 17 was dedicated to <clears throat> being as good of a jarhead as i could and i thought once we got you know into big conflict big by our definition you know number of folks involved that uh, all that stuff we went through during our formative time would uh, pay off in victory and when will talks about feeling the decision window close I'm thinking about we just like jerked off in Iraq and Afghanistan. I was there right in the middle of the circle, just not even trying to uh, to prosecute victory above a certain, above those battalion commanders. I didn't see very many people even trying to win the thing or, or thinking about what are we tr- we're trying to get these people to stand on their own. And, uh, you know, how are we going to do that? They just kind of they just let it let it fail you know and not only let it fail but all the money and all the stupid crap you know that uh, that they did and the uh, and just you know let it piss it away that pisses me the fuck off every day I think about it every fucking day and uh, all the bullshit about uh, when I see generals on the TV and stuff like that and, oh he's a highly respected four star who kept his mouth shut the whole fucking time. His troops were being blown <laughs> over the highways and he was a brigade commander or anything like that. Never said a goddamn word. And we went through, I don't know, because I admire these guys in a personal way because I know a lot of them, but that really pissed me off. But uh, the, uh, and when I see these Marines now, guys from that era, we, we let them into that thing and we didn't give them victory. 
So they're like the, those guys from Vietnam now. They can't really say, hey, you know, we won. You know, hey, we, they can't really say it. And this is like the most anemic enemy we've had ever, ever. Even even the Spanish during the Spanish-American War were tougher than these guys. It's like we gave up. It's like these Antifa turns. It's like if they, it's not that they beat us. It's just that we've said, fuck it after a while. We, you know, as a nation. And that really irks me. Every day it does. So, you know, um, and now I, I'm doing this job where, you know, I, I train Marines, you know, to do uh, certain things, you know, and, uh, you know, in regards to advising people and stuff like that. And I have to tell you, it's the same kid, you know, that, that I was in 1975, 76, with some differences, you know, but, uh, and I think to myself, you know, uh, what's their future? And I have to tell you, you know, some of the stuff we were talking about before, Mac, I queried. So we got like some really good staff sergeants in the uh, EOTG, and I'm asking them, hey, what's going on with this uh, Lance Corporal's running things in the uh, in the barracks? And go, hey, sir, there's no one who'll back us up if we go in there and kick, you know, kick ass, or nobody. You know, you know, they they're treating these guys like, uh, you know, like. Uh, like voters, like fucking voters, like running for goddamn office. Officers in Marine Corps running, acting like they're running for office. They're afraid. You know, and that, yeah, and so I hate to just be, uh, just talk about the Marine Corps, but what the fuck else do I know? And, uh, you know, um, that really, you know, bothers me. Yeah, I'll, no, probably it's, uh, now. I'll probably get fired now. I'll probably get fired now. Well, let me tell you, I mean, else. again, I mean, everybody will acknowledge that's the truth, you know, yeah. and, 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 you know, the staff NCOs as a group don't dominate the barracks anymore. They don't dominate units anymore like they used to, you know, the, and I don't know how it works if, if you know, it's, I don't, I mean, well, you know, we, how does it work when the, when the parents or the construction foreman every are, problem are, in the Marine Corps, there? Every problem in the Marine Corps is a fucking officer problem. There's no NCO problems. There's no dependent problems. It's a fucking officer problem because we're the ones who are supposed to stewardship and leadership this thing to success, and it's just not happening. Oh, we're we're guys are you know kicking. They're getting field goals on every promotion board and command screen board and shit. But what? But meanwhile, are we really? Are we? Could we do Guadalcanal now? I don't know. I have to say, I don't know. Well, I think no, those I'll guys tell you what, when, 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 we're, we're better equipped. When, when you have uh, when you have staff NCOs that look at you and say, there are now staff NCOs that this is what they've known. This is what they've known. They, us older guys, we remember what you're talking about. Younger guys have only grown up in 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 an organization that never had three formations a day. It did pass word, you know, via the text message, and um, and and the job is a nine to five job because it's not it's not worth your career, and the officers yeah. won't stand behind you, and so um, yeah, it's uh, and, and Mac, when you think about it, you know what you're what you're honing in on, and your wife now this idea of post traumatic winning requires a greater, more mature leadership engagement at every level. Right. Uh, 
because it takes a lot of guts to look someone in the eye and have true concern for them. It's easy to say, hey, how's everyone doing? Mm-hmm. It's bullshit. When it's obvious, and it should be obvious when people are suffering, or uh, to take that step to find out those things, that's hard. And if, you know, if, if leaders are afraid to do fundamentals, um, this is not, you know, this is above leadership 1.0. Right. Um, right. And if we're not doing leadership 1.0 very well, how do we expect to do leadership 4.0? No, that's it. That's it. And, you know, and, but it's amazing the number, you know, it's, this presentation is so much fun to do because as things have grown in, in significance and one of the things that has grown in significance is um, my reverence of my own gunnery sergeant uh, the day of that helicopter crash. And I look back and, you know, we take kids that don't have mental health problems that are getting their ass kicked by life because they've been raised by, you know, I don't know what kind of parenting. They were raised in schools that don't challenge them and don't hold them accountable. So they don't have good life skills. They don't have good coping skills, especially when life gets difficult. They don't have mental health issues. They're just getting their ass kicked. What they need is what happened to me, right? That day, he pulled me deeper into the tribe, right? He, you know, his 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 big meat hook on my shoulder, you know, pulling me into something that literally was handed down by generations of Marines, right? That was the verbal tradition because we didn't have anybody to do mental health at the time. It was just us. They were our therapists. And he got that from Vietnam guys. Now, we all know Vietnam guys, right? Not the brightest bulbs in the chandelier, right? Where did they get it? I don't know, about, I don't know who's better in those days. World War II guys? Korea's in college? Korea's guys? Fuckers in college? No, 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 no. Huh? My point is, as Marines go, they were nothing special. Where did they get it? They got it from Korean oh, yeah. War Marines and World War II Marines. Well, where did those guys get it? Guys who fought, you know, down in the Caribbean, in Latin America, guys who fought in the Philippines, guys who fought in, at Bella Wood, World War One. So this, I was so lucky to be the yeah. recipient of the, of the, oral tradition of mental health that was in the Marine Corps. And when you yeah. when you struggled on one of those islands, where did they send you? They sent you to hang out with the gunny for a couple of days, right? And you did shit with him, and then guess where you went? You went back to your squad. You know, and if they yeah. and if when you left the company, you never went back. Right? And so to me, you know, that is that's so significant in that you know, I have sergeant majors that believe that when we send them away, we finish breaking them. We're now going to send you to people that we wouldn't hang out with, we wouldn't go to a party with, and they're going to fix you, right? Yeah. As opposed to a staff and CEO who sits you, as opposed to Gunny Kenny set you down and say, hey, sit down. Look, there's nothing, well, I have to tell you, there's nothing wrong with you. What you're saying here, I can say something, Will can back me up because he was there. I, we, the first time I went to the field with the Lima company, we went and did NBC stuff in the in the Verona Loop area. When I came back, I found out we, I had three new guys, but one of them already went UA, and his name was Teets, Daryl Teets, T-E-A-T-S. And so I went and picked the, I, I called his house, 
I made his mom admit that he was there. I talked to his daddy. Yeah, dad, I, I got him. They sent him back. And I picked him up on Sunday at the airport there in Jayville. I took him to the barracks, and we lived in the troops were in squad bays there at Geiger, 8th Marine, you know. And uh, getting to duty and studio, I said, hey, don't let me make fuck with this guy. He's got to see the skipper tomorrow. And the next day, I went and told Cap Ratliff. I said, hey, sir, you know, um, this guy, he, he told me he wants to kill himself. And he wanted to see his parents one last time, and blah, 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 bullshit, right? So uh, I go, he's screaming at him, sir. You probably wouldn't do it anyway, but, you know. He goes, oh, I understand. Yeah, no problem. So we bring the kid in. He's standing there at attention in front of Captain Ralph. I know you're in there, Will. It was Gunny Cam or uh, Cam first on camera. I was in there. And um, uh, what was the Gunny? Uh, he was in Cameron. Cameron was his first sergeant. And maybe Bratton was there. Yeah, Bratton was there, yeah. And so he starts, sir, I wanted to see. He goes, who the Cap Ratliff yells at him, who the fuck are you to go UA for my company? Sir, I, I want to see my parents one last time before I, before you what? Before I kill myself. Ha, ha, ha. And Cap Ratliff pulls out a fucking K-bar and throws it down in front of him. Go ahead. Just as I suspected. And uh, the kid's shaking and everything. And I, so, and, and Ratliff's looking at me. I'm all red with embarrassment, you know? And, uh, I go, thank you, sir. We walk out. And Teets, we took him to Bridgeport right after that. And uh, his ass was kicked. But he had all, his officers actually happened in Bridgeport. And I said, look, Teets, I don't know what to tell you. I advise you, I just go in there and act like a man. Just take your medicine. And uh, and he did. And Teets squared away. He ended up, you know, he did his whole fucking four years or three years and nine months in Lima Company. You know, and um, but uh, the point of it is, you know, um, his squad leader was a guy named uh, Corporal Bate or Corporal Boyce. And this guy, the toughest fucking squad leader, maybe was the toughest guy in the company, you know, Iron Will. He just took the kid, you know, and, uh, and you know, he was okay after that. Remember that, Will? Remember that? Kid? Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I, I just think that is so significant, you know, and I tell a story about post-traumatic winner number one and, and that is luke and you know and i talk about you know him drinking and emailing me late at night and and uh you know we kind of struck up a friendship and then you know then he starts emailing me when he's drunk and i finally call him and i never he's post-traumatic winner number one i'd never really done this with anybody and i call him to tell him hey you gotta stop drinking and he says i know and i said no i don't mean it like that and I say, I'm giving you an order to stop drinking. Do you understand me, Luke? And now Luke's been out of the Marine Corps for eight years. I've been out of the Marine Corps for three. And then I look at everybody and say, if we're playing Family Feud, number one most likely answer to that order is what? Fuck you. <laughs> right? <laughs> Fuck you, motherfucker. Fuck you, motherfucker. <laughs> Go run somebody else's life, right? Yeah, right? And I said, but think about it. This is a tribal event. He respects me. I'm being I'm being gunny. Why? I'm being my gunny. So what do you think he says? He says yes, sir. And then I said, if you don't think I'll come down there, you know, you don't know me. And what does he do? He turns his life around, right? He completely changes his life. He sent me a text this past weekend. He goes, Mac. Because I gotta tell you, he said, man, my life has never been better. I'm a, you know, my, my wife just passed her last part of her CPA exam. I said, oh, 
cha-ching. And he said, yeah, life's about to get better financially. And I'm uh, in my last semester to get my aerospace engineering degree. Living in, Holy yeah, living in Huntsville, Alabama, Rocket City, USA. So probably not going to have a tough time getting a job. And uh, he said, you know, we volunteer at the mission and, and we preach post-traumatic winning. And, you know, and, you know, it's just, you know, that's, he's post-traumatic winner number one. And I, to me, that tribal event is so powerful. And, and whether it's a close friend of yours, when you look at them and say, hey, I want to talk to you, that that's what opens the door. And I think the thing that I know about post-traumatic winning is that it doesn't pump sunshine up your ass. It doesn't tell you bullshit, right, which I think turns so many people off. There's, you know, there's mean, there's a purpose in this, you know, time heals all wounds, all that shit that people say to you, you don't hear, hey, you, you don't, you don't hear that in post-traumatic winning. And so it keeps the door open. And then I think it gives you a, a plan and, and then a positive vision of how you can go forward. And so, but I think it's so important that it's a tribal event, that it's a tribal event and it doesn't send people away. So very interesting and again stockdale you know what's interesting is you know he talks about he didn't talk about um stoic philosophers or, or any of that in at the hanoi hilton he just did it he said yeah. i knew if i uh, i spoke of that stuff it would alienate them you know but but i knew what had to be done i knew that we that we you know as epictetus said you know we did not command our circumstances. We only commanded our choice, our choices within those circumstances. And that's what I aim to teach. And that's what, how I aim to see, to, to get us through. And uh, so, so I, I, I think it's intellectually, you know, very interesting. Uh, but again, to go back to the, the initial point of life changes in front of you. And we seem so reluctant you know, to see the need to change, right? And we just keep doing the same things. And then we wonder why our lives are, are screwed up, which to me is, seems interesting that we don't see it. Yet we can see it in other parts of our life, but we don't see it there. So anyway, all right, I've kept you too long enough. Any, uh, any, any, burning, uh, any burning events, any burning issues going on in your life uh, that I can help you with before we, we end this thing? Well... Uh, you know those big uh, St. Bernards that carried the brandy under there? We may need one of those up here late tomorrow. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, good, good luck finding that. <laughs> Actually, it, it's sort of funny. Um, six inches of snow today, and by 9 o'clock in the morning, every road was open. Clear. You know, wet but clear. And I have the same faith that if we get another six or eight inches tonight. And I I think schools were closed today, but nothing else was closed. And the only reason schools would be closed is there's some kids that live way out in the country. Right. They don't want to run the buses. Bus. Right. Yeah. Right. There was nothing else closed in the whole county. Hey, the guys uh, in the Carhartt, the guys in the Carhartts have it going on. I mean, uh, <laughs> Yeah, and I, I went to half a dozen places today, and parking lots are full, and people are doing it. It's just odd, right? This is what I grew up in, was used to, and you go anywhere else in the world, 
you know, south of maybe Scranton, and uh, this would have shut. This would have been bedlam. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, anyways, um, yeah, I don't think we'll need a rescue. We're in pretty good shape. Right, so. well, I'll Google Saint Bernard if I get FedEx to Saint Bernard. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, Jeffrey, how about you? Anything, any, uh, anything burning in your life right now? Well, there's a friend of mine who was, uh, he was at tail end of Vietnam. He listens to a podcast and he says, you're, you're, he disagrees with your stats on PTSD for those, uh, for those guys with 30 something percent. You said, he said most of that, he's a hardcore guy. 30, he goes, 30 something. Uh, oh, 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 for Vietnam. Yeah, he's like, that's not my He says stat. really way less. He says he says a lot. There's a lot of guys in his that were faking it, and he he he's not a PTSD guy at all, you know. And um, I mean, he he knows there's some of it, but um, right. he's like, uh, yeah, he, he liked the uh, he really liked the, that that thing we did on, um, you know, on uh, on. Um, Stockdale and all that stuff. He's a very well read guy, you know, and uh, he, you know, he was into it. But he said, but he takes it personal. He doesn't want to be limped in with all the reps, like all those fucking chow hall people we had, all the, you know, a lot of the normal goods and services and stuff support we had out there was contractor, whereas in Vietnam it was almost all GIs, and so. A lot of those guys, like I, I read about a guy in Guam who had PTSD for because he loaded bombs on B-52s, you know. So, but that was right. his point. No, but the main thing was, I understand. You know, yeah, right. Well, but but again, even if you drop it down to 15 or 10, you know, yeah. the when even you would contrast the Hanoi Hilton number of four with you know fill in whatever the other number is, and yeah. uh, and you see the exceptional event that happened there and uh yeah. but, but i completely understand what he's saying and i i i i, I sympathize well what you said about how you i'll tell you these guys talk to me my whole life like uh, gunny step i mean he's talked to me every day and like i was bitching to my wife i was bitching to Lori about i'm getting so goddamn fat i got i gotta stop drinking i got you know i got and i go if gunny step was here he'd say well you Stop whining, you food blister. You just gotta stop eating. <laughs> he always used that term, food blister, which is a great Marine Corps term. <laughs> you know, Jeff, what? you mean you, you've been able to get me out of your head? Now it's just Gunny Step talking to you every day. That's no, a, you're in there, Will. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Those are great. You know, bigger than life human beings that they ran. They ran the organization. When I was a lieutenant, I wanted to be a gunny. I'm like, that's the job, man. Yeah. That's the job. He's the shop foreman, and he's out there running the whole thing, and he's funnier than shit, right? And and those the, the things that Jeff says, right? You know, Step saying, Step is like quintessentially a gunnery sergeant, right? Hey, Cooper Kenny, how about how about we call this a draw, right? <laughs> After he kicks you, that's in the like a long speech for him too. <laughs> right, right. I mean, like, there's something interesting too. Is that I mean, me and Jeff and, and that company we were in, you know, we really had some exceptional guys. Absolutely. And I, I was just thinking about it, and b- before Jeff was there, the, the first sergeant was a guy named Weathers, and it's yeah. funny, they, I don't think they could have told you. 
you know, the Lejeune teacher son, yeah. students, you know, scholar, teacher, father son relationship. But they they lived it. Yeah. And even a guy like Gunny Cameron, who was a fire breather, yeah, uh, he took it personally, not because it would make him look bad, the company looked bad, but because he took it personally. Yeah, he took everything personally. And if we've if if you have and, and look, the, the, the staff NCOs in the mid-80s all enlisted, or Gunny's all enlisted early to mid-70s. You know, we were not peaking as a Marine Corps then. Oh, no. That's what I enlisted. You're right. We weren't. <laughs> but the guys that made it through that, uh, uh, at least the ones that we had there, and we had, yeah. we had some stars when we were there, I was just thinking about that. Even a guy named, you know, First Sergeant Weathers, who couldn't admin his way out of a wet paper bag, but he was father, son, teacher, scholar to those guys. He took it personally uh, with those guys. And uh, hey, if you ever want to see, if you ever want to see a riot break out among my friends, drop this one on him in the middle of a discussion. Don't take it personally. You will see heads exploding in the round. (laughs) Yeah. There's a famous man that told me once, take it personally because they all mean it personally. Yeah. Yeah. That's right, I did. (laughs) You know what? That was when when the squids made me... uh, the squids tried to make me buy a drink for everybody in the club in Rota because I put my cover on the bar. <laughs> and I had, that was one of the worst days of my life because I was the piss officer, thanks to Will, of uh, Lima. I had like a Lima company and the fucking AED platoon and the some of the pogues we had on the LST with us. So I had almost 300 bottles of piss that nobody would take off my hands. Finally, I got rid of them, and I'd walk up, and, and these guys were already in the bar. The bar uh, from Drake Santini, supposedly, right? I walk in, I'm, and these fucking squid pilots, as soon as they saw my cover hit the thing, they rung that fucking bell, and I'm like, not today. And I, <laughs> not only did I not buy them a drink, I bought Will and Joe a drink, and I think, damn. And we sat there the most uncomfortable five minutes of anybody's life because I don't need boost. I wasn't drunk. But I don't need booze to be a real asshole sometimes. <laughs> All right. Now that the clock is telling us we're done, we're done. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. There you have it. The uh, Mensa bro- <laughs> two-thirds of the Mensa brother. How about that? Um, how funny. Yeah, the, the custom is if you put your cover on the bar and there's a bell in the bar, if somebody rings the bell before you get your cover off the bar, you have to buy the bar around. So Jeff Kenny, <laughs> Jeff Kenny refuses, <laughs> which was not the first time that ever happened, by the way. Give that some thought. I'd be curious. Um, put that little bee in your bonnet. 
Traumatic things happen in life. <laughs> the circumstances of your life change, and but you don't change. You just keep marching against that wall like a little wind-up toy soldier. I mean, to the detriment of your life. Um, so there's a famous Mike Tyson quote, right? Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And that's what this kind of reminds me. Life punches you in the mouth. There goes the plan. And you know the funny thing is I was researching about that quote. You know who said that first? Joe Lewis. Yeah, Joe Lewis said that. I think in the 1930s. But it was a little bit more eloquent. Everybody's got a plan till they get hit. Right. And Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson, who's, who studied the great boxes prolifically. Right. Prolifically. Um, must have seen that quote someplace and then put it back out. But I thought it was kind of funny because everybody loves the quote, right? Everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth. It's a Joe Lewis quote. But anyway, regardless, um, well, what do you do when you get punched in the mouth? You just keep doing the same things? So to me, that's what that's trauma does. Life punches you in the mouth. Now what? So anyway, um, big night tonight, actually. Um, first segment of a uh, seminar. So I got to get off the air and, uh, and go ahead and uh, get ready for that. So have a great day. Don't be afraid to change somebody's life. Hope you enjoyed the Mensa Brothers, two-thirds of the Mensa event. Boxing eloquent about whatever we just talked about. Another show about nothing. Anyway, on a uh, Tuesday, I am out.